Are we good? <laughs> okay. Huh? Now we're good? Okay. Shall we? Rock and roll. <coughs> the Sechus Megillah. Yes? Tractate Megillah. We are on page 12, side 2. Allow me to refresh your memories. Vashti was not ready to come out and do a little dance. Not because she didn't want to, but because strange things started happening. And she didn't look, uh, she wasn't on top of her game. So she said, uh, I, I don't want to come out. I'm not coming out. And the, the Achashvera flies into an absolute rage. So, in last week's class, we learned that Achashverosh called a group of Jewish advisors. And as we mentioned, it's going to be, <laughs> it's a, a catch-22. The enraged king demands something gets done. If they say nothing should be done, so the king takes it out of them. If they say something should be done, when he's finished, when the wine washes off, <laughs> then he's going to be angry at the people. And actually, according to some opinions, he did kill some of those advisors immediately. And one of the things that they said in last week's Gemara is, we have suffered the trauma of destruction, expulsion, exile. We're not able to think clearly. Our neighbors in Ammon and Moab, they never had a difficult day in their life. Peace, calm, serenity. Speak to them. They should be able to do this. And according to some opinions, some of the people who are tapped are actually from the Ammon and Moab people. The Tehillah of David says something very interesting. He says, Ammon and Moab have a deep history. Who fathered Ammon and Moab? Lot. With whom? With his daughters. Famous biblical story. How did that happen? Lot was an indecent fellow, but, you know, between indecent and indecent, there's a bit of a gap. How did that happen? The answer is, they got him drunk. And in truth, we are told, L'shem, Shomayim, Neskavno, they had the purest of intentions. They believed the whole world was wiped out. They thought they were like Noah and, 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 and his children. And they thought that it was their responsibility to do something to repopulate the world. And there was a bottle of wine that just happened to show up, a bottle of apparently very strong wine. And so they plied the father with wine and did what they did. And the Chachamim, the sages of Israel, who, as we mentioned, were primarily from the children of Yisachar, the experts on the calendar, they said, speak to Ammon and Moab as if to say to Achashverosh, all of the problems begin with the wine. That's the problem. <laughs> but you know, these people are experts because their whole existence came because of the wine. So since your issues come because of your wine, this is an, an intoxication issue, and since they will understand, because after all, they were conceived out of that situation, they'll have sympathy. They won't be too harsh. 
that'll be the best ones to deal with. The Tehillah David says, we have a principle, a Talmudic principle, that a well that you drank from, don't throw rocks into. They benefited from wine. Since they benefited from wine, they would be understanding, compassionate of the situation. At any rate, they bowed out. Now last week in the class I mentioned that there is no indication in the scripture of this whatsoever. In fact, if you look in the words of the scripture, it just says, The king said, He spoke to the people who knew the times, and we explained that that's the Bnei Yisachar, that's the sages of Israel. Because that was his way. Why should he make the tough decisions himself? Blame it on the courts. Blame it on the wise people. And then, it doesn't say that he asked and they said no. It says this was the way. It doesn't say there was any change. The next thing we hear of is, we're getting names of a group of people. And here it says that they are Shivas, Sarai, Parasumade. They are the elders of Persia and Media. So the question is, how did we end up knowing that there were two different groups of people here? So the Marsha acknowledges that in the scripture there is no indication of it. And most people, when they hear it to the first time, are surprised that first there was a court or adjudicators of Jewish extraction who bowed out, and only afterwards was it these other people. So the Maharsha reasons that we see that Achashverosh turns to Chachomim Yedeitim. He turns to people who are identified as those who know time, and then he turns to other people. And we don't hear anything about the first people. We don't hear them having said anything. The only ones we hear say something is Mumuchan, who is one of these seven officers. So from this, we understand that clearly Achashverosh did speak to one group and they must have somehow passed the buck. They recused themselves. And because they recused themselves, that's why he went on afterwards to the second group. And this is where we're up to. So the king is enraged. Everything is lying in balance. And the king is totally, totally off his box now. The first group recused themselves, and so Achashverosh turns now to the next group. He moves to his cabinet. You are going to be the ones to make the decision, he says. Vahakarev, a love, the ones who are close to him, Karshana, Shesar, Admasa, Sharshis, the people who are listed over here, and then Medes, Marsanam, Muchan, Shivas, Sarei, Poras, Umadai, the seven elders of Persia and Media, they are the ones who are Rei Pnei HaMelech. They look at the face of the king. The Mepharshim say they used to gauge from his face what kind of mood he's in, and then they would decide how to respond appropriately. Anyway, they were always there, front, right, and center. Hayeshvim Rishayna B'Malchos, when it came to matters of monarchy, governance, even royalty, they were the first ones tapped. Which is interesting, because they weren't tapped here. <laughs> Clearly, we talked about it last week. Achashverosh wanted to blame the Jews. This is a perfect, a perfect setup. It's a great, a great situation. He can blame the Jews, and whatever happens, he's uh, so to speak happy. He he didn't lose. He's in a good position. But the Jewish sages were wiser than him, and so having no choice, he turns around to these individuals and he begins to ask them what to do. So the Gemara says 
that even though we understand this on a literal level, that there were these people and that they actually had names and, and that they were tapped and asked for advice and that they actually did respond, all that's true. However, the Gemara says, there is also a subtext. And tonight we're going to peel away the layers on the subtext. So depending on which version we follow, according to one version, there are malachim, there are heavenly angels who at this point are praying on behalf of the Jewish people. Why are they praying on behalf of the Jewish people? This is a Vashti story, because Vashti was a horrible person. And she used to abuse and torment the Jewish girls. And so the malachim, the angels, now demanded that God meet out to Vashti her just deserts, that she be punished. So this was their silent prayer. And the names just happened to line up perfectly with the silent prayer they offered. According to other opinions, it was not the Malachim, but this is the sages themselves in the Targum of the Megillah. It says that the Bnei Malachim, that the Bnei Yisachar, that the sages who were tapped the first time were grateful that they had been able to recuse themselves, they were able to shake Ahasuerus off, and now they began to offer a silent prayer that this Politburo or cabinet would in fact condemn Vashti because they believed that's what she deserved. But they don't want to do it, for obvious reasons. So the Gemara says, Omar Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi taught, Kol Pasuk Alshum Nemar. This entire Pasuk is alluding to the notion of offerings that were brought by the Jewish people. So the Karbanoti offerings were able to elicit divine grace. They were able to bring divine pardon and bring forth blessings when we need them. So the Levi, the Levi says, whether it was angels or the sages, that they were quietly trying to invoke the merits of the Jewish people, not for what they had done, because these Jewish people actually sinned, but nonetheless, they weren't the ones who were tormented. These poor innocent girls were abused by Vashti, and so they prayed that the offerings, that the merits of the Jewish people should now stand in their stead. And specifically, they referred to the karbanot, to the offerings. Now, how does, how does, um, how does Rabbi Levi get there? How do, you, how do you know that this is connected to karbanot? So let's take a look at Rashi. So Rashi says, Pasuk zeh al karbanot nemar. This pasuk is stated with regard to offerings. Because it says, V'hakarev elav. Hakarev elav means those who were close to him. Karov means close. Well, it should come as no surprise that the Hebrew word <coughs> for sacrifice, although that's a really bad word, it's a Greek word, it's a, it's a mistranslation. Korban doesn't mean a sacrifice. Korban means closeness. It means an offering, a gift, something that facilitates a more profound and meaningful relationship. So, Korav HaKorav Elov is Lashoin HaKrovas Korban that comes from the terminology of bringing a korban, of bringing close, of drawing close. That's the concept of korban, that the korban draws close. Malache HaShores, Rashi follows the opinion of, not the, Medr- not the Targum, but the Medrash, that the ministering angels, his Skirul of Ne'akadosh Baruch who prayed on behalf of the Jewish people, and they brought aloft the memory of the korbanot, of the offerings, She'ekrivu Yisrael, the fun of that the Jewish people, that the nation of Israel had brought before God. You know, like on Yom Kippur, we say, 
we mention the name of the angels, and we say, We say, angels of mercy, bring our prayers aloft, carry our prayers. So the offerings in and of themselves are meritorious. They, they, they themselves are envelopes for blessing. But it helps to have the angels to mention this, so to speak. And we do this today even with our own davening. We invoke the, 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 or seek the help of the angels. So here, the angels, without being asked, helped on their own. And they began to mention these various offerings before Hashem. And why were they doing this? This was not a Jewish issue yet at the time. As you'll see, this is more than a decade prior to the actual story of Purim. So why are they doing this? So that they would take that these, this, this Politburo, this ruling party of advisors of Achashverosh, would, would be sure to implement or exact vengeance against Vashti. So if Vashti is out of the way, who enters instead? Esther. Ah, so that's where the Malachim Adavarim. This is a pivotal moment. This is, a, this is a, what we call a fateful moment. And in this fateful moment where Vashti's future lies in balance, the angels are praying that Vashti goes south. So how do we get to this idea of Akorevilov? According to Rashi, the idea of Akorevilov is because the terminology of Korev, which means those who are close to him, that is, is kind of shares a common root is a similar permutation of the word korban, of the word offering. That's, that's the simple pshat. Now, it should be noted that we're not trying to disconstrue the verse from its literal meaning. We're just saying that there is a subtext, an additional message here. The Maharsha explains it like this. We're talking about a group of people. How many? Seven. When you want to say that seven people are close to somebody, what would you say? You would say, Hakrovim, the ones who were close, not the one who is close. We would have used plural. We don't use a plural expression. We use a singular expression. From the fact that we use a singular expression, it seems that there is something singular about this. What are we referring to then? The institution of the offerings. That's the way the Marsha explains it. In the Sefer Iye Hayam, he explains it, he says the diuk is, it says, Vahakarev Elov. Elov means to him, but really in Hebrew it should have said, Vahakarev Loi. Hakarev Loi, those who are close to Achashverosh. Hakarev Elov, as if those who drew close to him, that seems to be indicative of the Jewish people drawing close to God by virtue of offerings of Karbanot. And there is yet a third interpretation, and this is brought down by the Monis Halevi, who emphasizes that the verse is not being taken out of its literal meaning here, but the problem is that first it says, wise people, the knowers of time. And what were their names? What were the names of the Yehidehoitim? We don't know. Why don't we know? We do know the names of the cabinet. But if you were to follow the same style, it should have said, just like it said, that the king would bring his, his question. 
as it says in verse 13. So in verse 14, it should have said, Vahakarev a love, those who are close to him, Hayeshvim Rishena Bamalchus, or Raypne Melach, Hayesh Rishena Bamalchus, those who sit in the front row, those who are close to the king. Why would it have to say the names? It doesn't say Yedeo Itim, Shimon, Ruvain, Yehuda, Yisachar, I don't know, names. It only says names, Vahakarevilov. Why? Why are those names being mentioned? So the Manus Halevi says it's really irrelevant. These names are not mentioned a second time. They don't show up again in the Megillah. It's not like they play a big role and therefore they have to be identified. So in chapter 8 we go, oh, Meres, I remember him. And now he plays another role. Or, or you know, now we're going to hear about Mamuchan. Actually, according to most opinions, Mamuchan is Haman. But here he's not even called Haman. It doesn't even help us to know that his name is Mamuchan. And the Teisvah says, what, one second, we have a, a tradition that Daniel is called Mamuchan. He's not a wicked man. He's a righteous man. So, like a, why mention the names then? Elomai. So why do we mention the names? Says the Manus HaLevi, there's something about these names that contain an allusion. They allude to something. And because the, the, the Navi, because the prophet wants to give you a deeper subtext, he did not choose to incorporate the names of Yehideh or Itim, which presumably we could have known. I'm sure they knew. When the story happened, they knew who those wise people were. But they didn't leave those names in because it's not relevant to the story. Well, why are these names relevant? They only appear once. And according to some opinions, they were killed immediately afterwards. As soon as Zachashverosh uh, sobered up, he killed them. He says, you killed my wife, I kill you. Never mind that he put them in the position. So why bother saying their names? So the Manus Halevi says, clearly the names allude to another story. There's multiple things going on here at the same time. We're getting the facade. We're getting one part of the story. We're not getting the subtext. That's why we open the Gemara. Our sages says, ah, there's not just a story of people who were asked for advice, because they would just say people were asked for advice. The fact that we have names mentioned is because those names tell a story in and of themselves, as you'll see in a moment. We're going to expound on each one of those names, and we're going to find an allusion, how these names allude to different offerings, which is a key component in this subtext narrative. The Baal HaRekeach further says that the word Hakarev in the Megillah is spelled without a Vav. It's spelled the Hakarev. There should have been a Vav between the Resh and the Vez. And therefore, it can be read as the Hakarev. The Hakarev means that which was offered before him. A Korban would be Karev Lifne Hashem. And I would just add, it's really interesting because we know that God's name does not show up in the Megillah even once. But in the beginning of our, our, our classes, we also talked about this idea that although God's name doesn't show up overtly, God's name is alluded to. And one of the, one of the teachings is that every time it says the name Hamelech, which on a literal level refers to King Ahasuerus, no, it's not just King Ahasuerus. Hamelech refers to Malko Shalolam. So really, then this would make perfect sense. Akarev love. we're talking about the king here, yes, those who were close. What's closest to the Malchus? What's closest to the kingship of Hashem? That's the offerings. That's the Kurbanas that the Jewish people brought. This does not say anywhere, and I could be wrong. I'm just saying that it seems to me makes sense, but I don't know. Okay, so now that we understand what's going on here, we understand why the Gemara is expounding these names and how the Gemara seems to have discovered a subtext that it was something more than met the eye. And I believe he says the subtext is a secret 
silent prayer that was being offered by the Malachim, and these names allude to the prayer that was being brought, and the prayer was for the Beis HaMikdash. So here's the prayer. The prayer goes like this. He says, Karshana. Karshana. That's the first name. That was the man's name. Karshana. So, Omru Malachi Ashadis Lefnei HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Right? The Gemara says it was the Malachim. The Targum says Bnei Yisachar. But the, we thought we're learning the Gemara now. So the Gemara says, Malachi Ashadis said before God, Rebbein Yishalelam, Klum Hikrivu Lefanecha. Did they bring any offerings to you? These, these heathens who had been partying for dozens of days, 180 days, did they bring any offerings? Or was it just about themselves? Just pleasure themselves? Did they do anything for God? Did they even think of God? And the obvious answer is no. No, they didn't think. Why, why would they think of God? Think about themselves. Ah, so now we're talking about they who thought about themselves, and at the same time, we're talking about the question did they do anything to help or to express their loyalty or their devotion to Hashem? And so, the Malachim said, if they didn't do anything, so to speak, before God, so would it not be appropriate that now Vashti, who tormented the Jewish people, whose ancestors brought so many offerings over the ages, that the merit of those offerings should stand instead, in their stead, and that tor- their tormentor should be punished? So did they bring anything? And here the Malachim say, begin to bring to mind or mention the offerings. And what are the offerings? So obviously this is not directly, you're not going to find the offerings clearly listed, but you will find allusion to the offerings. What is the first offering? The first name is Karim Bnei Shana. Karim Bnei Shana means um, sheep, fat, fat sheep, like, like you know, calling Yiddish, zaftika sheep, good, well-endowed well sheep. So these karim, or these, uh, these healthy sheep, b'nei shana, a year, yearling sheep. Did they bring any yearling sheep? Kederech she'ekrivu Yisrael lefanecha? The way the Jewish people brought before you? And the answer is no. Let's take a look at Rashi. Karshna Rashi says, Klum ekrivu lefanecha karim b'nei shana. Did they bring any yearling sheep? Now karim and b'nei shana, if you put the two words together, what do you end up with? If you take these two words and you put them together conjunctively, karim is the fat sheep. Bnei shana is yearling. Karshana. Karshana is a conjunction of kar, shana. People do it with their businesses sometimes. They take their name and their partner's name and they put the two names together or they use the children's name or the wife's name or the husband's name. You know what I mean? Like people make these, these huh? acronyms. acronyms. But it's, it's almost like it's a, it's, a, it's a hyphenated word, created of two halves of a word. So here, karshana becomes an allusion to karim shana, to yearling sheep, which this was the carbon that the Jewish people would bring in the base of English on a daily basis. Okay, what's the next thing? The next thing is, did they bring any any pigeons? So the name is Shesar. Shesar is 
sounds like shtei toiren, two pigeons. Pigeons are never brought alone. They're always brought in groups. Always two pigeons. So we call, we call it a carbon of shtei toiren, of two pigeons. So if you take those words once again, you get a conjunction. Shtei toiren, and what's the guy's name? Sheisar. So it's conjunctive. Admasa klumba nulafanecha. What's Admasa? Admasa is the next guy. Karshasa, Shesa, Admasa. Admasa is a permutation of which word? Comes to the word Adama. His name was like Adam. But Admasa says, Klumba nulafanecha mizbeach Adama. Did they build before you a mizbeach of earth? Next name is Tarshish. What's Tarshish? Klum, shimshulafanecha bevigde kahuna. Did they use the robes of the high priest to serve you? And one of the most dazzling stones on the high, on the high priest's uh, ephod, on his breastplate, was Tarshish. Meres, the next name. Klum, mirsu bedam lefanecha. Did they mix the blood before you? Marsana. Klum mirsu bimenoches, did they knead the flour with oil to bring the meal offerings? Memuchan, which means set already. Klum hechinu shulchan lefanecha, did they prepare a table before you? And this is an allusion to the showbreads that were placed on the table. Let me, let me uh, go over these Rashis, and then I'm going to try to explain the, what, what's going on here. So Rashi says, Meres means shemirsu es adam yikrash. Okay, so here's how it goes. When the korban, when the offering was brought in the Beis HaMikdash, the animal would be slaughtered and his blood would be collected. And this may not make any sense to us whatsoever, and that's fine. I'm not saying it has to make sense to you. We know that Raza the Korban, the mystery of the offering, and it's a mystery, penetrates the mystery of the one of God. We do not understand offerings. But this is what the Torah says. So the animal is slaughtered, his blood is caught, and then the blood is dashed on the Mizbech. Sometimes the blood was poured or dashed on top of the Mizbech, and sometimes the blood was dashed against the corners, or sometimes on the side of the Mizbech. Now the altar, the Mizbech, had a line of demarcation, <coughs> which was called a Chuta Sikra, this imaginary red thread that was tied around the Mizbech. And therefore there would be the upper half of the Mizbech and the lower half of the Mizbech. Some offerings, some karbanot, the halacha is that the blood has to be dashed on the upper half of the mizbech. In some offerings, the blood has to be dashed on the lower part of the mizbech. Do you know what happens with blood if it's left alone? It coagulates, it congeals. So at a certain point, you're not going to have blood to dash anywhere because the blood is going to become hard. That would not serve your purposes. But there were times in the Beis HaMikdash that one offering, especially on Yom Kippur this was the case, one offering had to be brought, and then another offering, another procedure had to happen, and only later would the blood from the first offering be dashed on the Mizbech. So if you leave the blood alone, what happens to it? It, it, would, it would congeal. It would coagulate. Then you wouldn't have blood. So what did the Kohanim have to do? You actually had to stir it. Incidentally, these basins that they had in the Beis HaMikdash were cone-like. They didn't have a flat bottom, so they couldn't even be put down. So then you had to hold them in hand. To hold them in hand, constantly keep it in movement, 
So it will be ready for the service of the Beis HaMikdash. And as I said, this doesn't have to make sense to you. This is what the Torah says. So we allude now, Meres, what does Meres mean? Meres literally means to stir. That's what the name means. So he says, Meres means, Shemir suas Adam, that they were busy stirring the blood so that Shalai Yikresh. And once it would be Yikresh, once it would coagulate, it would not be Layehei Roy Lizrika, it couldn't be dashed on the Mizbech. The next name is Marsana. And Marsana means Mirsu Bimenoches Levoilalon. They would knead or mix the flour with the oil. And the halacha is that the oil has to become kneaded, the, the flour has to become kneaded with the oil. And, and then it was brought as an offering. So here Rashi suggests that memores doesn't mean to stir, but here it means loshen megis. It means like to stir like a heavy broth. Not to kind of, it's a difference between stirring a coffee, put some sugar or a sweetener and you stir the coffee. And then there's like, you know, what the Hungarians call goulash. Like a, a heavy soup, you know, like a, you have to stir that. That's, that's, a, that's a much more labor intensive thing. What are you getting excited about? Do you like goulash? What? <laughs> so, you understand there's different kind of stirring. So there's the stirring of flour with oil is much denser than the stirring of the blood. Although, very interestingly, the difference between meres and marsana, why do we have two different ideas? Where one is meres, which literally means sister, and the other is marsana. So the Sfasemes says like this. He says, what was the reason that they were stirring the blood? So it wouldn't congeal. It wasn't what they wanted to, uh, to happen, it was what they wanted to prevent. The stirring was merely a preventive measure. So he says, it's only Kadesh Likrish. That's why it says Meres. He's not actually working with the blood. You're not actually affecting or changing or in some way modifying the reality of the blood. He says, but the kneading or mixing or, or, or stirring of the, of the meal offering so that the flour, all the particles of the flour, would become kneaded and permeated with the oil. This would actually make the mincha suitable. It would make the meal offering suitable. So, marsena seems to be more of not just a maris, not just a casual stirring, but a heavy stirring. A stirring that was not simply designed to prevent coagulation, but a stirring that was designed to create a certain cohesion amongst all the different particles of flour that they should turn into dough. This is the way this Fasemis explains it. The, the Yaivet says that we have a Pasuk in the Torah that speaks about the Menachas. The Menachas are called Tufini. And Tufini means Te'ofeno. It's a conjunction, the Gemara says, in the Menachas, for that which is baked, but it's, 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 like, it's like raw. You know maybe what the example is? Um, sometimes you get served at, uh, like at a bar mitzvah or a wedding for dessert, they bring this volcano chocolate cake. You know, it's like still raw inside. So that's, <coughs> the Menachas were brought, they were still raw inside. They weren't well baked. So that's the word, no, no means raw. So tufini is te'ofeno. There was an emphasis that Benachas who brought very wet. So here it says, Marsino, they were needed 
but kneaded in a, in a, in a wet way. It was not like a thick dough. It was more like, like liquid. It's more like pancakes. And actually the menachas, many of them look like pancakes. They would actually be, some of the menachas were poured onto a frying pan called minchas chavitin. It was, it was a lot of oil and it was poured and it would automatically kind of be like a, one of those Hanukkah donuts. But, but it wasn't a piece of thick dough. It was something called bulilaraka. It was a very, very soft or very, very thin consistency. So that's why, that's the meaning of Meres and Marsana. So the name actually fits. The name fits perfectly with the activities that are being described over here. The seventh and the final thing is the Mamuchan, and this is the idea of the set table, or the golden table that stood in the base of Migdash. On which day did they remove the showbread, the special challah, and replace it? Anybody know? No, not Thursday, not Friday. Shabbos. In fact, when you're busy running to the Kiddush on Shabbos, if you look in the Siddur after Aleinu, there's something you're supposed to recite, a formula you're supposed to recite. And that's the Parsha of Lechem Aponim. Why? Because when the morning services in the Beis HaMikdash finished, before they went on to the afternoon, at the end of, before they went on to the evening, to the afternoon, after Musaf, after the special Musaf offering was brought, that's when the Kohenim would ceremoniously go into the, the tabernacle into the, into the actual structure of the sanctuary and there would be Kohanim carrying these piles, six and six piles of bread. Kohanim went in to take out the old bread and then the breads were divided amongst the Kohanim. Half went to the Kohanim who were finishing because Shabbos afternoon was changing of the guard. And half went to the new set of Kohanim who were coming in so all this took place on Shabbos. This was the big Shabbos activity. And that's why on Shabbos we celebrate Shabbat with Meals. It's meals. The Nevi'im said you have to have a meal. So if you have to have a meal, it should be a proper meal. A proper meal, you're going to have bread. So they call meal, meal is breaking bread. And then we have this notion that the manna, which was our original food or sustenance during the infanthood of our nation, when we were in the desert for 40 years, there would be a double portion that fell on Friday. So to commemorate this double portion, what would we do? We would take two loaves, lechem mishnah. According to some Rishonim, it's even biblical, this idea. Now, challah bread is the strangest bread on the face of earth. How is challah bread made? Braided. Different pieces of dough that are rolled and then braided. And what does the fact that the dough is braided and then baked do? Do you find, can you identify different pieces of dough when you cut the challah? Generally not. The loaf is a loaf is a loaf. Where's the difference? It's only on the outside. But it's this, you could like artificially impose the design on the bread. There are various cultures that design the bread or have the bread looking a certain way. The only ones who actually take pieces of bread and so to speak, braid them together, pieces of dough, braid the dough, are the Jewish people. And that's why people who know not much about Jewish people, when the sikhala, you know what they call it? Jewish bread. And it's called challah, and it's uniquely Jewish, and there's nothing like it. And I'll tell you why there's nothing like it, because it actually makes no sense. It's the dumbest thing. What's the point of taking different, uh, it doesn't taste any better. 
There's no sign of it. It doesn't make the challah easier to cut. It's the same thing. So what's the point? You took, you took loaves of bread, you, 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 you braided it together, you put it in the oven, it came out the same way. You could have just taken a bread and put it in the oven. And the amazing thing is that Jewish people who were living incommunicado from one another for over 2,000 years, some of them, they all met up and found themselves eating the same challah. They don't eat the same chalant, they don't eat the same fish, they don't eat the same brisket. But challah, they're all, and the challah looks virtually the same. All challah looks the same. How is it, how's it possible? So clearly, this comes from a time when we, the Jewish people, were together. When would that be? This would have to take us back to the second temple, at least, maybe even earlier. Now, most of the time, when you have challah bread, how many braids are there? Most of the time. What's the most typical challah bread? Six. Six. So you have six strands of dough forms one bread. Six strands of dough forms the other bread. And then you're holding two breads together. How many strands of dough are you holding when you're holding the challahs together? Twelve. How many lechem haponim? How many showbread were there in the base of Migdash? Twelve. In other words, we make the challah like that to honor the service in the Beis HaMikdash. So the, the bread was only brought in, it was not braided by the way, each one was a single piece, it was only brought in and taken out. The service, the changing of the breads and the eating consumption of the breads, when did it take place? On Shabbos. That's why our observance of Shabbos has a memory of the Beis HaMikdash. And we all have challah bread so therefore, it's natural that the seventh thing that's going to be listed is the challah, the memuchan. Memuchan means set. And that's the only table in the Beis HaMikdash. Now, when you look at this list of, of different offerings, it seems to be a little bit all over the place. First, we're talking about the sheep, and then we fly to pigeons. So the next thing should be, and then we talk about meal offerings. But first we talk about a, 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 an Adama, Admasa. We talk about the, 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 the Mizbech. So the Marsha says it's not all over the place at all. It's very choreographed. There is a perfect strategy, a structure. He says, here's how the structure goes. The first thing we talk about is the Korbanot, the offerings that were brought on behalf of every single Jewish person. Every single Jew in the world was part of this. Everybody got half a shekel, they were part of this. And what was the daily offering? Karshana, Karim, Beneshana. So that's the first thing we talk about. What's the next thing we talk about? A big animal, a big sheep. That's, that, that, that's expensive. Not everybody can afford that. What's the next thing we talk about? Next thing we talk about is the poor person's offering. What's the purple, poor person's offering? Two little birds? Two little birds. And after we talk about the two offerings, what's the next thing we say? The next thing is Admasa. The next thing we talk about is where, where the, those offerings were brought. So we have the rich, rich offering and the poor offering. And where was it brought? On the altar, on the Mizbeach. Ah, okay. Now, what else was brought on the Mizbeach? The blood was. So therefore, we talk about the blood. That's Meris. And then we talk about the poorest of offerings. What was the poorest of offerings? You're supposed to bring an animal. You couldn't bring an animal... You brought birds. What if you couldn't even bring birds? Then you brought flour. That's the next thing. That's the meal offering. Then we talk about the people who are bringing the offerings. Who brought the offerings? 
the offerings, the Kohen Gadol. He's the big kahuna. So we, we, we talk about Tarshish. And then after we talk about Tarshish, so I, I mixed up the order here a little. We go, after talking about the offerings, and the, and the, and we, first we talk about the karbanot. We talk about the animals, then we talk about the bread, the birds. After we talk about that, we talk about the altar. After talking about the altar, so we have the ingredients, we have the actors, we have, we have the location. What? What? Offerings, animals and birds. Where? On the Mizbeach, Admasa. Who? The Kohanim. Two references to Kohanim. Tarshish refers to the big kahuna, the Kohen Gadol. And then who is Memores Badam? Who is busy mixing around the blood? The Kohanim. So now we refer to the ordinary Kohanim. The next thing we talk about is the concept of the poorest offering. We talk about the idea of the meal offering. And then he says, all of this culminates with the concept of bread, which was brought on a table on a regular basis. In fact, it was always there. So much so that our sages tell us in the Gemara, when they would take one bread off, they wouldn't take a bread off and then replace it. They would take the bread, and they would move this bread in from here, and the other corner was slowly moving the bread on the, away on the other side. So there was never a time when the table was devoid of bread, which represented a receptacle for Hashem's bracha, for Parnassah, for the concept of sustenance and nourishment for the Jewish people. So this is the story of the private prayer that was being offered up at that time. So what happened? How did it go? Did the prayer get accepted? So the, the, the Gemara now continues on and he says, So Memuchan said, and here we find Memuchan suddenly the only one who's, gonna, who's speaking. Everybody else is quiet. So the Gemara says, Tana, we learned, Memuchan zehaman. Memuchan is haman. Velama nikra shmei memuchan. Why is his name Memuchan? Why, do we, why is that his nam de gur? Memuchan comes from the term prepared, ready, suitable. So the Gemara says, I'll tell you why. Shemuchan leparonius. Because he was somehow perfectly suited for trouble, for bad stuff. What does this mean that he was suited for bad stuff? So Rashi says, He was slated to be hanged. So he had a target on his back. He just didn't know about it. That means Memuchan, from the beginning, he was ready to be killed, and he was killed by the, by the king in the right time. This is one opinion of the terminology of what Memuchan, or the readiness, means. And there are other opinions also as to the idea of what is the notion of Memuchan. There's, there's um, the Ian Yaakov says, explaining Rashi, the words of Rashi, he says that it is brought down in the Medrash that the tree or very, very tall gallows that Haman swung from was ready from the beginning of creation. That it was kind of put away and ready. Now the Sefer Ihayam explains that Memuchan means he was ready for Tsaras, means in doing so he prepared himself for Tsaras. He really stuck his neck out. He should have known that Achashverosh was not going to be happy after this. But he somehow managed to deflect everything. He's like the Teflon guy, Marsha says. He ended up deflecting the Tsaras onto everybody else. Somehow, he was the perfect vehicle, the perfect storm, the perfect alibi. Everybody else ended up getting in trouble. And, and he did. He brought misfortune to Vashti. And he tried very hard 
and came very close to succeeding in bringing misfortune to our nation. So this is Mamuchan. This is the fellow who makes all the trouble. Now I want to tell you that this, uh, the, this group of people, according to the Targum, was, was um, a very, very multicultural group. They represented a broad range of individuals. The Targum says that these seven individuals came from different places. It says, Karshana, he was from Africa. And he was appointed to be responsible for the food of the animals. So I would call him like the Minister of Energy. Because there was no trucks then, no, no locomotives, no trains. So everything ran on, on animals. Pack, pack uh, donkeys, the mules, <coughs> camels. It was a very busy place, Ahasuerus' kingdom. So that was his job. That was Karshana, and he represented the African part of the nation, of, of, of Ahasuerus' conglomeration. Shesar, he came from India, and he was responsible for alcoholic beverages. He ran the LCBO. <laughs> Admasa, he came from Edom. The Ma'amloi says, read not as Edomite from the Middle East, but read that as Germany. For we know that Europe was already settled. And Alsace-Lorraine was under the sway of Ahasuerus' dominion. So he represented what we will call Alsace-Lorraine or Germany and France. That was this guy, Admasa. What was his job? His job was to be responsible for what we would call in today's day and age the economy and the minister of justice. He was responsible for Eurokis and for Lishbay Tabriz. Those were his, his ministries. Tarshish was Egyptian. And Egypt is seen as distinct and apart from the rest of Africa. And his job, he was kind of like the chief of staff for Ahasuerus, Menahel Beiser. And then the last three fellows, Meres, Marsino, Memuchanim, Amloya says, they come from Yerushalayim. I know what that means. That's what he says over here. And he says they were basically responsible for overseeing everything. Why did he have seven people from different kinds of backgrounds? So he says, Ahasuerus was a very, very clever fellow. And he understood that the conventions of one country or one anthropology are not the conventions of the other. So he figured he'll take the best of each group. And taking the best and the finest of each culture, what they had to offer, he thought he would build the most wondrous kind of Politburo that would never fail him. And these are the people who sat before him. So anybody who thinks that they discovered multiculturalism in, in the 1950s or 60s, think again. Ahasuerus is the architect of the original multiculturalism. He was the first one to believe in multiculturalism. By the way, he was not such a nice guy. I'm just saying. He was, he was a big believer in that. And he was a very, very smart guy. There is virtue and value to trying to learn from all cultures and civilizations and anthropologies, all social circles. Everybody has their way of doing something. And he's, he created that mosaic. Now, why did Mamuchan speak? So the Gemara is going to tell us that from here you see that Mamuchan was a person who always pushed himself to the front. Inappropriate individual. Although, the, the, uh, some of the Mepharshim say, the, the Medrash seems to say this, that there was different, a different member of the Politburo each day was responsible for being the spokesperson and making judgment calls. 
there would be a, like a rotating, a rotating chair, chairmanship. So today was Mumuchan's day. And we said before, his name is Mumuchan. Why? He's always ready. <laughs> He's prepared. Mumuchan had this knack of always being there at the right, I mean the wrong, I mean the right time. Like, you know, when there's trouble, Mumuchan and trouble somehow always found each other. So Mumuchan knew exactly what's going to be over there. And uh, he was going to do what he was going to do. Now, that's what the Gemara says. The Teisvis asks a question. Teisvis says, Yesh Medrish Shahaya Daniel, that Mamuchan is a really good guy. He's Daniel. And why do we call him Mamuchan? And um, so the Mepharshim say, because he was, he was ready and prepared for sacrifice when everybody else wasn't. And God made miracles for him. And he was married to a Persian princess or medium princess. And she pushed him around. And so he felt the pain of Ahasuerus. He felt that he was a henpecked man getting pushed around, and that was his motivation to give this ruling. According to the opinion that it's Haman, he was trying to push his daughter. He had a beauty queen daughter, and he was trying to push her into the position. By the way, what happened to her? When it came her night to show up, she developed a terrible diarrhea and horrible bad breath. A miracle. So obviously Ahasuerus was not impressed, and that didn't go anywhere. So anyway, the Teisvis Rosh maintains that there were two people called Mamuchan. Two Mamuchans. Why would Daniel, so Daniel married a convert and he married a princess. Why did he marry a princess? So the Medrash says Belshazzar forced him to. Well, he married a non-Jew. So no, he said actually he didn't marry a non-Jew. She converted and became Jewish. But why would Daniel, who was like a Rebbe for the Jewish people, why, why did he marry a convert? So, so the thing is that Daniel was a compromised individual. The king's in those days, had a very, very bad habit of castrating older men around them. They called them eunuchs. And this way they, were, they, they, were, they wouldn't have to be concerned with what they would do. They wouldn't mess around with their harem. And this, this, this was the way things happened. So it seems Daniel Nebuch got this treatment, and therefore he really had no choice at that point. So he was literally emasculated and figuratively emasculated, and he was pushed around by his wife, and so he had this chip on his shoulder, and that's why Daniel would have given that ruling. But again, that's not what Argamara says. Argamara says clearly, we follow, and this is the opinion we follow, that Memuchan is Haman, and Haman was trying to knock Vashti down because Haman wanted to push his daughter in. And what does Hashem arrange? The, the, the poetic justice of God is unbelievable. Hashem arranges that the Haman, the one who destroys, wants to destroy the na- our nation, he ends up being the one responsible for Esther's queenship. Because because of him, it's because of him, it's because of Mamuchan that Vashti was killed, and Esther becomes the queen. Okay, so moving right along, the Gemara now says, Mamuchan was ready for all this uh, trouble. Amr of Kahana, Rav Kahana says, Mikan. From here we learn Shahediet Kefitz Beresh that the person who rushes to grab the microphone always to speak is not necessarily the wisest. Uh, the most uh, impressive is not necessarily most prominent. That's the, it's the nature of inappropriateness. And that's always the way it's been. So, what happened? What happened was Ahasuerus was very unhappy. The Megillah tells the story after this. The advice that was given by Memuchan is, look at you. Your wife pushed you around. You feel like a fool. You're not even a king. 
You're not even king in your own castle. Forget the palace. You have to put your foot down. You show those ladies who's boss. She won't come and prance around. That's it. She's gone now. And now all of the women will respect their husband. This infantile uh, idea. And Achashverosh embraces it. So Rava says that itself was a miracle. That itself was a miracle, he says. Ilmole, which Rashi says means luli. If not, if not for that letter, the first letters that were sent out, this is a euphemism. It doesn't mean enemies of Israel. It means Israel. Nothing would have been left. There would be nothing left from us. Why? Because the Gemara presumes that they would have killed us all. Let's take a look in Rashi. is the last one mentioned. is the last one. is the one is the big speaker. And he tells Achashverosh this ridiculous business of don't let the lady push you around. You show the lady, the man's boss in the house. That he now was seen as a fool. So he, he ruled of 127 provinces. Now, believe me, he was a ruthless politician. And he got his way. And he ran his country. But he also he was an idiot. He, he spoke like a fool. So behind his back, they were all laughing at him. Look at this idiot. Look at a letter he sent out. He sent out. He killed his wife, so everybody should know, man's the boss in the house. The misogynist, the misogynist. So they're laughing at him behind his back. And the, the Gemara says it was the greatest miracle. Because if not for that, nothing would have been left. But Mitzvah Rashi says, when they got that first letter that said, kill all the Jews, save the date, 13th of Adar, genocide, they wouldn't have waited for the 13th of Adar. They got a letter, kill the Jews, they would have killed the Jews right away. But the thing was, because of the, uh, the later on, a letter came, and the letter came later, and said that Jews can defend themselves. He says they wouldn't have waited. As soon as they got the middle letter, they wouldn't have waited for the big day. The letter said, be ready for the day, muster the troops, mobilize. On the 13th day of Adar, we get rid of our Jews forever. We get rid of the Jewish problem. They wouldn't have waited for the 13th of Adar. If every Jew has a target on his back, if they're going to get killed anyway, let's just do it now. So why didn't they do it? They didn't do it because they said, this guy's a nut bar. He sends crazy letters. One letter, he said, so we can't really take him seriously. Amri, my hi, the Shadalon. What did he send them? They said, that every man is boss in his own house. You go send a letter in the, to, to, to the ISIS people. You should know a man is boss in his house. What would they do? What would they say we get such a letter? They're like, what, what other possibility is there? <laughs> like, this, is, this was the, the culture of the day. It was a male-dominated culture. And Achashverosh is sending a letter. A man is going to control his house. Of course he's going to control his house, they said. What kind of letter is this? So they said, Pshita, self-understood. Afilu Korcha. Even a, a common weaver. It's a euphemism for a person who's not too gifted or too talented. He doesn't have too much wisdom. In his own house, he's a, he's a prince. Of course the man is the prince. Of course the man is, runs his house. That's what the whole ancient world was. Akash sent a letter like this. So, so they left. They said, this, this guy's an idiot. Amri, my haideshadar, 
The nation said to one another, Each one said, Did you get the letter? I got the letter. You get the letter? I got the letter. You get the letter? And what did he say? He said, Every man is the king of his own castle. Now, what did they say? The weaver is the king in his castle. Everybody's king in their own castle. Pardashka is a pocket, a nugget, a uh, ruler, a, a magnet. So, this is how the Gemara explains this was a miracle that happened. And, you know, when you, when you listen to the story of the Megillah on Purim night, you think the whole thing happened like in a couple of months or a couple of years. You know, first letter, second letter, third letter. So if you, if you listen carefully, you, you'll, you'll realize that the first letter was sent, Bishnas Shalosh L'Malchusay. Shalosh L'Malchusay, the third year of Achashverosh's rule. When was the letter sent out in the month of Nisan for genocide? In the twelfth year. Nine years later. And then a second letter that was sent out, and it was dated Chaf Gimel Sivan on the 23rd day of Sivan. So these three letters did not come in the course of a few months. This was uh, an attitude. For nine years, they didn't take Achashver seriously. They still laughed at this fool, this bumbling idiot who's, who's the king, who says the stupidest things, who makes ridiculous statements. They were laughing at him, but they were terrified of him, and he ran the country, but they laughed at him. And they didn't take him seriously. Does it sound familiar? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Nothing changes. So this is what was going on. And because it happened that way, that's why the Jewish people were spared. Now, so this is the pshat. This is the simple pshat. I have to share with you, in the Yadah's Dvash, there's an incredible, incredible exposition on this thing. The Yadah's Dvash, he asks a question. He says, I don't understand. You're telling me that they didn't take Achashverosh seriously nine years later when he sent out a letter for genocide because nine years earlier he made a statement that the man is king in his castle? And he said, if they didn't take him seriously the first time, why would they take him seriously the third time? And he said, what do you mean he didn't take him seriously? He was the king. You know what happens when you don't listen to the king? Your head does not remain attached to your shoulders. Uh, that's what happened to Vashti in a flash. That's what happened to Haman, the prime minister. In a flash, he was hanging from the gallows. This was a king. He didn't, he didn't take any prisoners. What happened to Big Son and Seresh? They were swinging from the gallows. People were terrified of the king. The king gives an order and the people laugh. The Yaras Dvash, as it doesn't make any sense. What is the Gemara saying? So the Yaras Dvash offers a phenomenally creative approach. I'm not sure how it fits into Rashi, but a phenomenally creative approach to this whole thing. He says, let's go back to the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra, in verse 11, says that Vashti came from a different background, a different birth. Vashti, it says, she was a Kazdian, she was Chaldean. So Vashti, in her tradition, her family, the woman didn't get up and dance in front of the men. So she said to Achashverosh, that's your culture, it ain't mine. I'm not doing that. So Achashverosh now had a situation where his wife is the one calling the shots. She's deciding the culture he has to live with. So he flew into a rage. He said, I'm the king of this castle. You're my wife. You have to do my culture. You have to do my thing. Now I do your thing. And that was the meaning of his letter. He sent that letter and he said, if you have two people getting married from different provinces, we're going to follow the custom of the husband, not the custom of the wife. Interesting. Which incidentally has room in halacha also. 
So the Sephardim, let's say, will eat rice on Pesach. Ashkenazim do not eat rice on Pesach. If an Ashkenazi girl marries a Sephardic boy, she can eat rice on Pesach. If a Sephardic girl marries an Ashkenazi boy, she stops eating rice on Pesach. So this has a, it's not entirely, he wasn't entirely a fool. He, he laid the law then. He says, here's what's going to happen. From now on in this country, you're going to follow the, the you've got to take one custom. You can't have two customs. He's going to have a multicultural cabinet. But you can't have a multicultural house, he said. I don't, I don't agree with that. It's got, the house has to have a direction. So how are we going to have a direction? We're going to have an intermarriage. Religion A is going to marry religion B. What religion are they going to follow? The husband's religion. What conventions? The husband's conventions. Like today, most women will take on the husband's. You want to have one name? What's the family name? So as if I take the husband's name. So Ahasuerus set this up. And because Ahasuerus set this up, everything changed. He actually, he legislated a, 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 a cultural shift in his, in, his, in his empire. Because of this, the Ibn Ezra says, when Esther was arrested and brought to the palace, so Mordechai said to her, don't breathe a word of who you are. Never say you're Jewish. Why not? Why, why did Mordechai want him to be? So we say, oh, Mordechai was a prophet. But on a literal level, why did Mordechai want him to be quiet? So the Ibn Ezra reason is very simple. Mordechai said, if, you, if he finds out you're Jewish, he's going to say, hey, now you're part of my religion. So in my religion, you eat pork, and in my religion, you work on Shabbos, and in my religion, you do all the things he would force Esther to abandon her Jewish faith. But if he didn't know she was Jewish, he would assume she was like everybody else. So she quietly, clandestinely kept the Jewish faith alive. Now, because of this, he says, as a result, why did Esther not tell about what her faith was? Because of the story, because of that letter. Had that letter not been authored, had this new cultural law or rule or, 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 or principle not been brought into the kingdom, when, when Esther would have been asked, what's her religion, what, what would she have said? Jewish. But here, that she knew she's going to be forcibly converted. So the Yaris Dvash says, because of this story, Esther didn't tell anybody she was Jewish. And because Esther didn't tell anybody she was Jewish, that's why we were saved. And the Yaris Dvash says like this, if people knew Esther was Jewish and a letter like that would come out, they wouldn't wait two days. They would kill the Jews on the spot because what would they have thought? They're a bunch of anti-Semites. You all hated us. They said if the queen will get a hold of the king's ear, she'll chew it and chew it until he rescinds the decree. Let's do it now before she manages to change it. But in fact, nobody knew Esther was Jewish. And because nobody knew Esther was Jewish, Esther was all those years later. All those years later, Esther, nine years later, was able to engineer the salvation of the Jewish people. So the Yaris Dvash has a whole different take on it. The way he explains it, it's, all, it's, a, it's not about a, a foolish letter. On the contrary, it's about a reasonable edict, a new shift in culture and civilization, which many would argue holds, holds sway until today, because it wasn't like that before. Ahasuerus was what introduced this. And because Ahasuerus introduced that new shift, that new cultural moray, because of that, Esther ended up living as Esther did. And that's how the story of Purim happened. So at any rate, you see the fingership, fingerprints of God all over this. And you see how the beginning of the kingdom, three years into his kingdom, Hashem is already putting the details in place that if the Jewish people will continue to sin, and if and when there'll be a degree of genocide against them, and if and when they'll do tshuva, which they did, 
Everything has already, all the sleeper cells were put in place so when the moment would come, the salvation of the Jewish people could be brought about. And that, my dear friends, is a little more about the story of Purim.